Hi, I'm Michelle. And the topic I wanted to cover today was um, talking about stigmas con concerning queer sex, and then basically how those stigmas go into affecting children growing up in uh, heteronormative environments with them uh, coming to terms with their own sexuality um, and trying to understand who they are um, when they're surrounded by an environment that doesn't normally reinforce that or support that. And I'm Patty Martinez. And I'm Maddie. And I'm Alexandra Calloway. Okay, so if you want to go ahead and start us off with the first question, Michelle. Okay, awesome. The first question was something that I personally struggled with a lot um, because it took me a while to figure out that I was pan um, because I think that, um, or I'll go into it after I ask the question, but why do you think it's so difficult for pan and bisexual women to figure out their own sexuality? I think it's like, I, it, it's kind of like tied into your question of like the fact that we do live in um, a heteronormative society and kind of like every single environment that we encounter and, you know, the media that we grow up around is very heteronormative, meaning like, you know, the norm is man and woman uh, with sex, the norm is P and V. And that's just kind of like, even since we're little, um, what's the little like song like first comes love then comes the baby in the baby carriage and like you know people just expect that that's man and woman or even like with uh fairy tales and things like that there's the prince and the princess and so I think also people are kind of told like you have to choose you have to choose like if you like women or you like men and the thing that's expected of you as a woman is to be interested in men but even like if you're not and you kind of like stray away from that norm you still are expected to choose one or the other um yeah I don't know I can also kind of chime in here I think um growing up for me personally like a lot of my friends were bisexual but it's kind of sexualized for women to be attracted to women as well so then there's kind of issues that pertain to feeling like you're a sexual being all the time for liking both men and women or males and females and it's just it's very hard for people to feel comfortable with that especially from where I came from because no matter what I just feel like people feel like uncomfortable by the way that they might be perceived and there's a lot of stigmas around that so makes it difficult for people to come out and be comfortable with themselves. I think you make a really good point with how like women on women love is completely sexualized because we can jump to, we'll go back to my second question, but my third question is um, how are LGBTQ plus individuals shown in media and how do you think um, that affects queer individuals who are supposed to resonate with that character? And I think that the only, um, you know, lesbian or bisexual relationships we see are to like for entertainment. It's always for um, like shock value or um, uh, them hooking up for the male gaze. Um, I just remember um, a, a great example of this is Jennifer's Body, if you guys have seen that movie. And that movie was supposed to like the, the um, director literally said like she made it for the girls and the gays and that was it. And um, then because they marketed it so aggressively to men because Megan Fox was in it. And um, there was a scene with Megan um, Fox and Amanda Seyfried making out. And that was like half of the trailers when it's like, 
it's supposed to be talking about like manipulative female relationships and like um, uh, women coming to terms with uh, who they are. It's supposed to be that journey. And it's marketed towards men because there's a hot girl in there and that's all that they can see. Um, yeah. Yeah. So that's a good point. And I, I don't know if either of you have uh, watched it, but yesterday I was watching um, I guess it's like a documentary. It's the Bell Hooks um, Cultural Criticism Transformation uh, doc. And she talks about, she's specifically talking about the way Black culture is portrayed and kind of commodified. Um, but this idea of like white conservative, young moneyed white conservative people being really enamored with transgressive behavior and associating themselves with transgressive behavior. And I feel like we can also kind of apply that to how you um, were talking about how like this lesbian relationship was really marketed towards men and who could like be really infatuated with this idea and like sexualize it, but then they can also distance themselves from it and be like, I don't approve of that. Like, I think, you know, women shouldn't be together and like, I don't know, it was just really interesting for me. And I had like such an aha moment hearing about the way that people who don't really identify with whatever the transgressive behavior or like culture is considered can easily adopt it when it's when it benefits them and when they can gain from it. But then when they when it comes to like maintaining their own class status or like being able to fit within that heteronormative box, they can easily just push it away, distance themselves from it disapprove of it um, and still be totally fine. Whereas like the people, people who are like, we're particularly talking about bisexual women, like, you know, they get used and, and sexualized in all these ways. Um, and, and then what, you know, you're kind of left feeling in like, right. the of, like whatever I do is wrong. But when, when I don't, I, I guess I don't know how to say it, but like if men like it in the moment, you know, I don't, I don't know. Uh, the yeah. perfect example is the way that a lot of young men fantasize and really associate like such, I don't know, pleasure around a threesome and fascination with it. But then as soon as someone says they're bisexual and they're open about it, it becomes this horrible unacceptable thing and they don't want to be associated with someone or they wouldn't want to be in a relationship a relationship with someone that's bisexual when they think a threesome is the hottest thing in the world. And it's just like, that blows my mind. <laughs> and you can't pick and choose when someone's sexuality like benefits you. Yeah. Right. Um, <laughs> this, this is a not great example, but I just saw a TikTok come up um, and it was um, this, this girl duetted this guy's TikTok and he was like, he's a bisexual man. And he was like, um, bisexual women, like get away with anything, like, because like it's sexualized for them and it's hot for them, but bisexual men, like blah, blah, blah. And then it's, um, it's a not femme um, bisexual woman. And she's like, no, we don't because like they, yeah, it's just like um, one cookie cutter version of how um, the male gaze wants to see what a bisexual looks like. And if it doesn't fit that, they also don't get those privileges yeah and then there's also you know the stigmas and the stereotypes of like um bisexual people in general are more likely to cheat because there's a wider pool you know like oh i i know a lot of people will be like oh well would you be comfortable with your partner um you know being pan or being bisexual like 
would that make you feel insecure? And it's like, if you're secure in your relationship, you're secure in your relationship. Like, yeah, there's no correlation. (laughs) Um, But again, it just goes back to that, like, hypersexualization of of pan and bisexual people, specifically women, um, since that's what we're talking about. Um, the other notes under this question I had was, um, the fact that often these characters are portrayed as, or portrayed by straight actors. And then on top of that, they're rarely actors of color. It's only white people. Um, and then when their stories are shown, the only thing that matters in their story is their coming out story. It's never anything about them finding their goals and them, um, getting into their dream school them doing anything it's only about like them coming out and I'm like well there's more after people come out there's a whole like yeah that's not their whole story yeah Um, I think that's also really upsetting when that's the sole focus of someone's life is you know they tend to focus on the trauma of coming out mm -hmm. as well as opposed to you know just having that be normal like that's I just don't understand why there's such hyper focus on that topic when there's so many other components of an individual's life that matter (laughs) yeah um oh continue I was just gonna say like rather than having it just be like an aspect of a character it, it it's always like that's the only thing about that character that exists and that's important um it's not just like well with like heterosexual characters you're not hyper focused on their sexuality you're focused on everything else in their life and then maybe there's also a love story or maybe they also have a significant other but it's just kind of like um a side thing the the two examples i had jotted down as um, a good example and a bad example were um love simon being a bad example um because not only is it like a white man or straight white man portraying um this gay kid but Mm -hmm. the whole story is um him coming out and him like his I I don't know if you guys have seen the movie but like he's obviously like really struggling with it and his friends completely turn on him because he didn't come out to them and it's just like turning his situation into something that they can use against him so it's just not a great movie to watch for this and a great example I thought was from Brooklyn Nine-Nine um because um with Diaz's character she's so much more than I believe she's bisexual um but mm-hmm. the the story chooses to focus on chosen families because like that's like a huge part of the cu- queer community because um uh, often they're forced out of their own families and they have to find other people who love and accept them and Brooklyn Nine-Nine focused on that aspect of it um, which like gave insight to so many people uh, uh, to so many people about another part of the queer experience that a lot of people don't see mm-hmm. and th- that was really beautiful to watch because it opened my eyes to that and um, th- that just seemed like really good um, different sides of the um, you know and yeah. then um, I, I was also watching a it was a documentary about um, queer characters in the 50s through the 80s and um so in those stories, um, sexuality is used as a joke. So like a, a man's not, it's um, queer coding. It's, he's not gay, but he's very flamboyant and funny and not a masculine man. So he's the butt of every joke or she's um, more masculine and um, people make fun of her because men aren't interested in a masculine woman. And um, 
that's also like a lot of media that we've had to overcome. And it also feels like we're, we're supposed to be thankful for these breadcrumbs because it's not making fun of us anymore, but it's also not showing us like accurate storylines. It's not showing us um, storylines that we can be proud of. Right. And the other thing too, it's like when you're watching these examples of really not so great examples of representation, whether that is with, you know, LGBTQIA plus individuals or just like non-white characters, it's like, who is this for? Who's the audience? Because it always feels like with all these stories, especially when it is like a coming out story, it's for a straight audience to feel like, oh, I get it now. Oh, I understand. I can view these these types of people as human now because I saw this movie. So it's like, it's not for people who identify with the characters um, to, to, I don't know, to finally feel like they're being represented. It's, it's for an entirely different audience. Um, yeah, it's just checking a box. Yeah, exactly. And I, I have like a really hard time with this because I'm, um, I'm a screenwriting student. And so I want to work in the entertainment industry. Um, and like right now I'm kind of like, well, maybe I just have been having this thought over like the last few weeks of the fact that like the problem with the fact that we have so many bad examples of representation all across the board um, has to do with the people in power. And I was like, okay, well, like if I want to change that, maybe I, maybe being a creative executive is the route I should go rather than being a writer, because it's not the fact that we have a, a, a lack of diverse writers in general, whether that's ability status, uh, sexuality, gender identity, you know, ethnicity, race, it's that the stories that matter aren't getting greenlit. Um, and then it also goes into like, is representation the most powerful thing? Is representation what we need? But I do think that representation is really powerful. Yeah. You know, it's not the only thing and it's not the only thing that we need in order to be empowered and like be free. But like, I do think that there is some sort of importance to it. It also makes it really difficult for people that are in your position where you could make a big difference, but then you feel obligated to accurately portray so many people's stories and it's right. just very difficult. Um, very hard to do that job and get it done well I, I I couldn't imagine being put in that position and feeling like I had the opportunity to make such a difference but also I, I would just be concerned because it's um, hard to do a good job I'd say yeah and I would be interested to see like looking at Love, Simon I feel like you could do an entire case study of like comparing Love, Simon and Brooklyn Nine-Nine and like see who are who are the producers who was the writer who directed it and like why did it come out this way and and because it's based on a book right yeah I don't know have you read the book I haven't I've okay. I've heard that the book is amazing and that he's like more than this two-dimensional character okay. in the book um but I'm I wouldn't be surprised to check like I could check right now the director's probably like a straight white man yeah. And then things, you know, things get sanitized and like changed and like to make it more palatable to a wider audience because people want to rake in the money. Yes. Yeah, <laughs> Which is like very true. Yeah. Um, another thing, let me pull up this other question I had. Um, 
Oh, I had a comment about something. Oh, oh, it was about the, um, I keep referring back to movies, but um, the mo- the movie that was just on Netflix, Moxie. Yes. Um, yeah, in terms of um, like representation and um, doing like justice to these characters, um, I think that movie got a lot of slack because obviously like um, all the side characters who actually got things done were, um, uh, minority characters and then the main character is obviously a blonde white girl um but there's also like an argument to be made from the other side of like amy poehler is the one who created this story so right. obviously amy poehler doesn't want to like she wants to create an empowering story for women but she can only tell her own um viewpoint and that goes back to like even though like watching that movie i feel like that movie did a good job and it was um as much of a good job as it could have done had there been other movies surrounding it if we allowed other projects like you were talking about um to show the other sides of those characters um we there wouldn't be so much um criticism on like a movie that does a good job uh representing certain experiences um it it ends up being so that if your if your story is good it's not good enough because it doesn't show every side and it's not the job of it's not the job of one feminist to like tell every story it's the job of like the rest of the world to give like other women the power to tell other stories yeah Yeah. I totally agree and it it connects to what you said earlier about like having to be grateful for these breadcrumbs but also at the same time like sometimes it's not good enough but and then to Alexandra's point of like, there's so much pressure on every single, you know, writer or director or whatever. Like you said, one person can't encompass everything, but it almost feels like we have to hold the writers that do get things made, like we have to hold them so accountable. But I wonder if um, like the negative criticism that Moxie did get will then have negative repercussions Mm -hmm. because it's like oh well people don't like stuff like this we don't need stuff like this yeah but in fact and then it scares off other people from even trying yeah or just well producers because like maybe fear of not doing a good job yeah so many difficult components to overcome for sure yeah yeah, I think that like it, you make a good point. It might like encourage them to create projects that are safe, that mm-hmm. they know will do well because no one will like pick holes in it and no one will expect anything of it. Whereas like the reason we could criticize Moxie so much was because it didn't do a good job. Yeah. Um, the next topic I wanted to cover was what discriminations and biases have you guys seen in the way schools and government handle sex education? Okay. Yeah, how that could potentially lead to um, stigmas affecting the way that queer students see themselves. Yeah, well, one thing I'll say, I went to a private school um, and we didn't have any sex education. So I feel like that definitely had um, an impact on everyone. (laughs) Like we had health in seventh grade, but I could not tell you like anything we learned about sex ed um you know everyone has like the video that you watch in like fifth or sixth grade where you learn about having a period um but even that is like it's split up between you know the gender binary girls and boys 
and so that's an example of like how you see the examples of 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 biases in that yeah i agree i had a similar experience um i went to private catholic school so the first time i learned about like periods was very easy because there were no boys in the classroom but then when i got to middle school i was in public school by then and um you know we they literally asked the boys if they wanted to leave the classroom so that's just the beginning of the end right there like it's just like it we're already doing ourselves an injustice and we haven't even gotten to sex ed yet so um yeah and, and then we never learned about sex whatsoever it was just big blank space and then we ended up eventually like watching a giving birth video but I mean like we can give birth and we can watch that but we can't watch how how that you know comes to fruition <laughs> like it's just absolutely they always show the birthing video I didn't even <laughs> see that <laughs> see my like my school was the complete opposite like we talked like really early on really heavily about sex but we only talked about like P and V sex we didn't talk about anything else so um that's it's hard for me to like classify sex in my head as something other than that because that's like for like the first like 10 years of my life like all we talked about was like it's only sex if something gets inserted um yeah I agree with that I went to public school as well and it wasn't even that we had talked about non-heterosexual sex at any point and considered it invalid it just never got brought up like I didn't even know that it existed or it was possible um and there was always this sense of like more seriousness when it came to women and our responsibility or obligation during sex because I could remember the guys um in elementary school when we were like in fourth or fifth grade getting out earlier and going to recess or going to lunch early and then we would all meet them at the tables when we were done. And it was interesting because we got, because we got out early, it was this sense of like, oh, we had a serious discussion that took more time or we needed more time to discuss something that the guys was irrelevant for them. Um, which I think really sets the tone when we, when they kind of merge both, um, the little girls and little boys together and we're asking each other questions um, about what we talked about separately and I don't know I mean I'm sure part of it too is just the way that little kids communicate what they were learning but there definitely was a, a different um, energy and different approach to kind of describing what we had talked about um, between both of our groups which I think yeah. definitely plays into the sense of responsibility that we're ingrained with um, as women, even when we're little or fourth or fifth grade. Yeah. yeah. And it carries on throughout, you know, adulthood in, in the context of like um, heterosexual relationships, like it's on the woman to be on birth control and like, you know, take care of that and, and, and make sure that nothing goes wrong. Um, I don't know if anyone else had anything to add to that. I had a question that's related was like, what do you wish that you would have learned in sex ed? I, um, I wish other than um, that sex can be more than just one thing. Um, I wish that 
men had to learn more about like female bodies. I like, like um, what Maddie was saying, I think um, everything that's described about their bodies is, you know, natural and um, natural is the best word. And for us, it's like inappropriate and like hush hush when we talk about it. Mm -hmm. And then it goes on like, because there's so much we have to do to take care of ourselves, um, uh, uh, having to do with like the gynecologist and things we have to do yearly to make sure that we're okay. um, I think it's important that like, we're aware of like what men have to do with their bodies and that they are aware of what we have to do with ours. And like past a sexual point, just like from like a health perspective, like, like, we all have things that need to happen that we aren't aware of with the other sex. And because everything having to do with our genitalia is sexualized so much, like nothing can just be like there. Nothing can just be like, yeah. I also think maybe taking the focus away from having it just have a reproductive purpose would be (laughs) another great place because it's, I mean, that's, clearly not just the purpose of sex and the fact that that's so heavily focused upon is just not appropriate honestly because I mean then it does create these divisions when it does come to people having heterosexual relationships and or and homosexual relationships like it's just it, it creates a division right then and there and it's just not acceptable Um, that's something that I didn't um really think about is that because you know in a non um hetero relationship you know you're not um you're not having sex to conceive and so like the way that I feel like it's treated um in media tying it back to media or like if it is portrayed in media people tend to like have a really strong reaction to it, um, which is not the case with like, when a man and a woman are having sex in a movie, like if you're watching with your family, you might feel uncomfortable, but outside of that, it's just kind of like, oh yeah, like that's what happens. Um, And I wonder if that has to do with the way that people are so uncomfortable with the idea of like pleasure and and things like that. And I don't know, I I never connected those dots. I have so much. Oh, sorry. No, you go, Michelle. Well, there's just so much. Because you remember when I came in after um, losing my virginity and I was like, that's it? Like, (laughs) it it typed up so much. And I was laying there and I was like, I thought I'd feel different. I thought I'd feel more mature. And I was like, no, literally nothing like happened. And it was so frustrating because I was like, wow, this has been like 21 years of buildup in my head to nothing. And I just like attached so much of my self-worth being like, I will be a real woman when I have sex. Like, even like, me having three years of women's studies under my belt, I was like tying myself to that, like knowing that 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 doesn't make sense and it's not true, but I still was like, I will feel more complete. I will feel like a real woman, real adult once I do it. And then I did it and I was like, so I I just wish that like the pleasure aspect was strained on it and not um, like, this is what you do um, when you wanna procreate. This is what you do um, when you're a real woman. No, it's like what you do when you wanna have some fun sometimes. Like, yeah. Mm-hmm. And also, I think that kind of ties back to, um, like, boys and girls both learning about each other's bodies. Like, if a man doesn't know what a female's body is, or if a female doesn't know what a male's body is, or if a female doesn't know what another female's body is, or if 
a male doesn't know what another male's body is there's no pleasure because there's confusion like let's just scrap that like let's I don't know I just think it creates a lot of um, frustration for a lot of people for a very long time when there's just a complete lack of education. It's also interesting to see how we're describing these experiences at school with like so much seriousness attached to quote unquote the biological aspect of sex if we can even say that that exists Um, and how we kind of strip away this pleasure aspect as if like it doesn't even exist or um as if that's never the goal or the motivation of sex and I was um in the pleasure activism book that we've been reading there's a part in it where um one of the authors says that adults say things to children ridiculous things to children as if they're not embodied actual people and I thought that was so or I resonated a lot with that quote because we trust kids at such a young age to talk about sex in a purely science way, if, you know, for lack of better words. Um, but why don't we trust them to handle things like pleasure where that is connected to emotion and connected to um, a liberating feeling for kids? Um, I mean, not necessarily as children, but to kind of start that process as children. Um, and honestly, I think a lot of it comes from sex education, people who kind of organize or come up with curriculum related to sex education being scared or being fearful um, and kind of using that as a justification to never talk about certain things because they haven't addressed those own lessons or Mm -hmm. concepts for themselves or processed it for themselves, um, which makes them, I think, more resistant to talk about it with children because they don't feel comfortable in that um in that teaching role yeah you know something that that made me think of um I have a four-year-old niece um and she I can remember the first time that she said the word vagina and she was over here um yeah, and I think like I was with my mom, so her grandma, and we were just like, like what? Like what? How do you know that word? And like, like why are you saying that word? Like what is? Like like just so thrown off. And even as someone who, you know, women's studies is my minor, I consider myself a feminist. I take all these classes. I'm doing all these readings. I have the beliefs that I have. I was like. I feel like you should not be like, why are you saying that? Like, what if you say that around like an adult man, like what is going to happen? Like what, what if you're on the playground, like saying these words, like, you know, like there are all these thoughts that like went through my mind. And then like the same thing happened when she said penis. And I'm like, how do you know these things? But it's, I know the benefits of, you know, a child knowing the, the actual names of, of anatomy Uh, And one of the things is because this is a terrible reason, but if something happens to them, if they're touched inappropriately, they know how to say to an adult what happened to them in a way that an adult can understand and like take action. Um, But also it's like, why, why am I so uncomfortable with that word? Like why, you know, like, why is it wrong for 
a child to say that. And that is, that was in, like you said, um, kind of like a scientific or just a purely biological usage of the word. Um, and what you said about like certain things that we haven't, that adults might not have reconciled with within themselves and accepted and, and kind of processed um, gives me a lot to think about. <laughs> yeah, I'm so glad you brought that up too, because I, like my parents are more like business people and my uncle, my dad's best friend growing up is a doctor. His wife was a nurse. She passed away, but um, his children were are what, five, six years younger than me. And I remember they would be like walking around in diapers saying penis and vagina. And my parents would be like, oh, oh those are your privates. You know, like because he, he was a doctor and can describe things biologically, it was acceptable for his kids to say that, but not for me yeah. because everything's like hush, hush, quiet. You know, it's just very interesting. It really, that we're taught to be comfortable with certain things and not others yes exactly it really makes kids feel like they don't have control over their own bodies and that they yeah. don't have control over their own sexual desires or even romantic desires because for one like sex is never or rarely talked about at home and it's rarely talked about in a romantic like in connection to romantic relationships as well um because it's constantly talked about as a reproductive thing and I guess my follow-up question would be, where should sex ed be happening? And um, should we assume that it's just strictly a school thing or if it's um, something that we can connect to home or other place? You know, I, I, cause I've, I don't know, like on social media and stuff have seen different like approaches to it and the the different like proposals of how it should be or or ways it could be and I do like the idea of it being something that is like slowly introduced over time and like maybe when you're very little like you're in the first grade you are learning biological anatomical things and learning how your body works you know because even in terms of like sex ed like like I said, I never had, we didn't have that at my school. Um, and I also, I didn't take health in high school and it was offered, but it wasn't a requirement for some reason, but like, I didn't know anything about, you know, having to have a pap smear. And then I had, I got my first one a couple of months ago and I was freaking terrified. I like so scared. Cause like, I didn't know what was gonna happen I just knew that I was going to be invaded um and and but it's like that's something that you have you should you have to do to like maintain your health and make sure you're you're healthy and whatever especially if you do have um you know history of certain cancers in your family um but like all these things are kind of brought up in a way that's like oh it's so scary like we don't want to talk about it um I'll let someone else talk, but I do also think that it should be integrated into the home as well. We could, it's I funny you men yes, it's funny you mentioned the integrating it slowly over time um, because the same author that I was talking to about guys earlier said that with um, their own child, they introduced it in what they call like cyclical sex talks. And so it was at ages four, age 12 and 15 and then curiously enough, never brought up after that 
um, despite them kind of intervening at multiple times throughout raising them being like, okay, do you want to talk about this again? Do you have questions? Like co consistent communication. Um, and that the conversations were always precise, frank, age appropriate and directed and dictated by the child. And so mm -hmm. she allowed the child to take the reins in terms of navigating the conversation and bringing up questions. And that was a great starting off point for knowing what they were ready for and what is age appropriate in quotes, <laughs> because for everyone that's different. Um, right. Yeah, I thought that was an interesting way to approaching it because I've always heard or received the notion that it would be dangerous to introduce these topics at eight, let alone four years old. Um, <laughs> so I think that's a really interesting way to approaching sex education. I think uh, another thing, and this could be related to how, you know, how sex ed is taught is like straying away from the gender binary because this connects to the topic, our earlier topic of like the the confusion and, and the the disparities and biases that are are present in sex ed. And I think like in straying away from the gender binary in these sort of, you know, talks and, and classes, whatever it might be, you help to to remedy that. And if everyone is learning about everything, then people or kids are are able to understand that, you know, there are, whether it's like with sex, like there's multiple ways for it to happen. Um, and even like gender identity, you know, cause like if everything is always split up, oh, the boys go over here and the girls go over here. What about the kids that don't find themselves fitting into either of those, um, you know, areas? Yeah, and, I like, think that's- the confusion that, that that creates. Yeah, I think social media right now is doing a really great job of um, trying to welcome and accept like any type of um, gender performance or sexuality that you may have. Um, I think that like, it, it, it's such a prevalent issue talking about mental health with people who don't identify as a man or a woman um, because they don't, it takes them so long to figure out like who they identify as and because there's like so little representation and they don't hear about it. They hear about this is a man's body and this is a woman's body. And um, if we do a better job of normalizing and telling every single story, it can help younger kids and like as they grow up figure out who they are mm -hmm. so that they don't like deal with that self-hatred that's like so prevalent among queer and youth. also and also being more accepting of other people like also you know there's no sort of um education about intersex people you know yeah. and like um I'm just thinking of like all the benefits if if students are introduced to I don't know the topics that we learn in women's studies um, but, you know, on a more basic level, the different benefits that, that that could have. And I had another question related to what you said about social media. Um, I saw that. That was a good question. Yeah. I was wondering, like, what do you think the benefits or and or the drawbacks of young people being able to self-educate using the Internet and social media, especially like with TikTok right now, given that, you know, there's, there's just like a lack of, of good sex education all across the board, all across this country. Um, so I'm curious like what your guys' uh, thoughts are on that. 
I think it's creating a really good community. Um, like people are, yeah, sorry. People are just like figuring it out, figuring out that they're not alone, that like, there's not like a cookie cutter version of themselves that they're supposed to be. And I think with everything, like since the internet has been out, it's been like, you could click like one wrong thing and then like get exposed to so much that you're not ready for, but that's existed with everything. And I, I think, um, especially with things like the for you page where it's curated to you, um, it's a good thing. It's it's all like it's also forcing other people to a little bit get educated. But um, with everything, there's also the side of like in the comments, there's a bunch of people um, making fun of them or like attacking them just for identifying a certain way. Um, but I, I personally think it's overall doing more good than the opposite. That's I think also just yeah the education component of it and just like younger kids being exposed to it is great but I also think one of the concerns that I would have is like as a parent I mean once I leave a Chapman and you know go on my own I as a feminist believe it's my duty to educate myself and understand like the way that different thoughts are changing or just you know, staying on top of things changing. But I think a lot of parents, especially like my parents or even some of the younger parents um, don't use TikTok or aren't on that side of TikTok or those platforms that are educating their children. So it's very hard to rely on that or just hope for that to reach them because I know like my my dad's side of TikTok is just funny dad stuff. Like it's not... <laughs> You know, like he has no yeah. idea. So it's just a bummer that that's the algorithm, you know. But it's also such a good tool to teach kids at a young age to utilize the internet in a productive way regarding sex education or anything. Because I mean, to a certain extent, it covers bases. If there is something that they were curious about or something that wasn't like implemented in the sex ed curriculum that they can also that they know that there's other places to find information um, mm -hmm. and that they don't have to feel kind of trapped in this limited square of not of like information um, and I don't know I also think it's ignorant to assume that no kids would turn to the internet to look any things up yeah. or anything up um, and kind of leads to the question of what you were saying earlier, Michelle, about um, kind of finding information that, that they might not be ready for, but that is the case with everything. Um, and that's like something that they, like the, the better way to remedy something like that is to offer consistent communication or maybe the health counselor comes in once a week and is like, hey, like I know we talked about sex education or had our program a couple months ago, but like, I'm going to continue to come here as a resource for you, just so it's not like a one and done topic that you can, mm -hmm. that you can yeah. have a discussion about. No, so, that's such a good point, like creating a safe space for them to have a dialogue, because if they do see something too early, and like, it's something that makes them uncomfortable, like, if they feel comfortable enough to bring it up to you, if they don't think it's a taboo, like topic, um, they'll know that you're a safe person to talk to. Sorry. Um, yeah. Yeah, and I think like um, going back to to what you asked, Maddie, about like how it might be brought up in the home, like letting your kids know, like if you don't 
like hoping that they would feel comfortable asking you questions, especially if this is something that you've kind of presented as like, this isn't taboo, this is something we can talk about. And it's something that with the, um, what did you call it? The cyclical conversation. Um, That's kind of like, I would think that that would make it feel like this is something that's okay to talk about, but also saying like, if, you know, you do have the internet. If there's something that you don't feel comfortable asking me about, like you can look things up and these are the resources, like, because there are really great online resources. There's also, like you said, Michelle, like the, the comments on TikTok in particular are like awful. Um, but there's also like really great resources and really great, uh, websites that you can turn to if you do have more questions or like, I'm not the expert on everything. Um, but we can look at this and like, we can, we can even look at these resources together if you do have questions. And I also really, really like the idea of having, um, the child be the one guiding these conversations, um, because it, one, it like you said, it it lets you know what they're ready for and also lets them have that agency over their own health and their own bodies and, and start helps them to start exercising that that agency. Absolutely. I think like one of the things that is really emphasized through that book is is re is creating and reifying this autonomy in the child because they grow up without having much control over anything in their life. And so to to kind of introduce this topic as something that they can under can continually like feel comfortable learning about themselves and learning about in general, I feel like is a really powerful skill that I don't know, could, should be implemented in other topics as well, not just sex education. Um, because we, I, I think in general, kids are raised in a way that like makes them feel like they're just absorbing information constantly and that they don't have a say in what they can and what they can like explore, what they can receive or adopt as part of their perception of the world. Everything is just kind of put onto them. And then I have like a kind of like a follow-up question. Um, we've been so focused on like kids and how, you know, future generations kind of would would be able, how we could like fix it for, for future generations. But like, what do you think, I don't really know how to phrase this, but like, what is the solution for us? And like people our age that are still, like you said, like, we are or we're becoming the adults that have those things that need that we need to reconcile within ourselves and like come to accept within ourselves and I guess like I'm just curious like what you think the ways of doing that are I I don't know that's I know it's kind of like vague and no that's a very good question to ask (laughs) because like if as I as we're talking now and as every time I talk about this, like I'm constantly thinking about how people that are younger than me and people that are older than me don't know enough. Mm-hmm. Um, but I rarely ask myself that question. Um, and so I think that's a really, a really good place to like explore for ourselves. Right. I think we're put at like such a disadvantage because it's so hard to unlearn things that are, are so like ingrained in us. And like, even like we are the perfect example because we are people who 
chose this major because we wanted to learn more because we understood the things that we were learning and being like forced into in the world um, was wrong and you know, unfair. And like, even all of us have biases that like are always going to stay with us that we understand are wrong, but they're just, they've been, they've taken root in us and it's just, it's going to be really tough to like completely get rid of that. But it's one of the reasons why it makes us um, so great because um, we can understand why it's wrong to want to learn better Mm -hmm. and like to want better for the future. I think one of the most effective ways would be to change or be conscious of what we're absorbing from media in terms of like, who do we follow and what kind of messages do they perpetuate? Are they all the same message? Are they all the same representation? Because as much as we want to know that we know better or like to think in ourselves that like, we know there's other options or there's other ways of living. Like if we don't ever expose ourselves to that on a consistent basis, then our subconscious will never assume or recognize that. And I feel like that's one of the ways that we can, I don't know, kind of unlearn things that we have absorbed growing up that are not the most positive message. Yeah, like one thing I was thinking about, like the reason why I I, I thought of that question, I recently stopped taking um, birth control. And so I have like, I was trying, I had gone off of like the one that I, loved and I was on for a couple of years and like was going from one to one and like I hated them all and just decided like okay I'm just gonna not take it anymore because I don't need I don't need to um and so like I have one box right here I have in, in my desk like in the drawer hidden away and then in my nightstand I have a couple of other boxes and like I don't even want to throw them away in my trash because I don't want my dad to ask me any questions about it. Mm. You know, like I'm, I'm 21 years old. I'm technically, I'm an adult, but like, I, I, I think it's different too. And like, um, since I moved back home because of the pandemic, like definitely feeling the different ways in which, uh, you know, like I've regressed or like fallen back into old behaviors or like patterns and ways of thinking. But it's just interesting to me how like, even with all the beliefs that I have, I'm like afraid of what if someone else with a different belief or whatever wants to question me in the way that I'm, you know, taking agency over my own body. Um, Yeah. So like I have a bunch of like, you know, empty packs that are like stuffed in my nightstand. And I was like, I was cleaning out my nightstand yesterday and I was like, this is so dumb. And I'm like, okay, yeah, but I'm not going to throw, I'm not going to throw them away in our trash. It might be dumb, but I'm not, I'm not even going to do it. Yeah. Yeah. Because something like, some things like that are, even though they're difficult topics, like they're not open for discussion. Like your body is not open for discussion with anyone else. Yeah. I think for me, I've been taking a mindfulness communication course and that's been helping me just realize like how much my mindset impacts the way that I go about my life and just like how adopting like a growth mindset has really like helped me because I like try to come to every experience now with like an understanding that there's something to be learned there's something new for me to learn from it and not just experiencing everything as like a reinforcement of my current beliefs so just like kind of people being open to like changing or different perspectives is kind of an a simple way to start but I think it's also effective because 
it opens so many doors for you to just kind of like try to improve yourself and I don't know being a better feminist for me has kind of started with that I think since the pandemic that's just like the easiest way for me to kind of start that back up again (laughs) make progress for myself that was really beautiful Alex that sounds like a really great class too um Patty in regards to your question and what you just shared I recently um got to listen to this author and activist um uh, Aurora Chang or Dr. Aurora Chang and she was discussing like the importance of of exploring tension and I thought that was really interesting because like I think it's our instinct to kind of kind of um stray away from really contradictory or just I guess tension is the best way to describe it like tense topics or tense situations and experiences um but she was saying like not only do the best and most authentic stories come from people who who discuss and explore tension but it also allows us to grow the most um from kind of addressing this inner conflict and I, I feel like in my own experiences with my family when I've like when I very much recognize that what I'm doing is not something that I would recommend my own child to do or that I would want myself to do, but I just, I really need to do it because I feel like I don't have another option. The alternative is a worse outcome. Mm-hmm. Um, I like, even if you don't end up throwing them away, like just kind of sitting in that feeling and kind of exploring like why it makes you feel that way what led up to that, just kind of like really absorbing and exploring it, whether that's journaling or expressing it in other ways. Yeah. I feel like it's such a productive or proactive way of going about something, even if we feel like we're not ready for that step, kind of like the priming of that. Right. Really helpful. Yeah. I, I'm definitely going to, I wrote down that author's name. Um, that's really interesting. Yeah. And- I'll send you our reading that we did. She was really, she was really cool. Yeah, I got to look into that. I've definitely like, I think it's also, you know, with different things, with kind of whatever it is that we've we've discussed so far, it's like, sometimes you might not be ready to explore certain territories, like you said, you might not be ready to take that step yet, but like, starting to, or just exploring mm-hmm. it or, or whatever the case is, it's still taking a step. It's also really powerful to know your own limit. Like that's like a huge skill to have. I completely agree. And that's like, even apart from talking about sex, but also just exploring sex ourselves. And like, I know when I first like was exploring masturbating, like that was something that I had to know, like, what am I comfortable with? And like, kind of taking that first step, like those types of conversations I had to like have with myself. And I like, I mean, I'm almost positive. Like those are things that are, are at least not even just for myself, but like that are rarely talked about with our parents or with anyone else um, or even friends. Like that's something that is really hard to navigate individually. Yeah. I can't think of a single time where I've talked about masturbation with a friend ever. 
Yeah, I second that. <laughs> and I wonder Do we why. know if like this is a conversation that happens more often or less often with, with men? You know, mm-hmm. I, don't I don't know. I feel like not. Um, I was just so like yesterday, uh, I, I saw <laughs> I saw a TikTok and it was like this girl who was she was like pretending it was like a conversation with her boyfriend and just kind of like, oh, so like did did Chris say why he and Jenny broke up? And he's like, oh, like we didn't really talk about that. Um, and then she's just like asking all these questions about like the guy and his guy friends and like their personal lives. And every question she he asked, she asked, he was like, oh, like we didn't really talk about that. And I have that experience every time, like with my boyfriend when he hangs out with his guy friends. Um, and I'm like, what do you talk about? And so I, I brought it up to him yesterday and we were just like laughing about it and talking about it. And he was like, well, we don't really like talk about personal things really. We just kind of like, you know, and maybe if something personal comes up, like something funny will happen and like that will take precedent and like we'll get caught up in like the moment of the joke or whatever. And it's really just a lot more lighthearted things and like physical comp, like physical jokes and things like that, Um, which obviously that's not every single guy and every single, you know, man's experience, but that's just like anecdotally like one thing that I don't yeah I don't know yeah I saw that TikTok (laughs) (laughs) I I feel like I know like I feel like I know such like an aggressive amount of all of my like female and male friends um personal lives Mm -hmm. and it's just so crazy that like that isn't like the first thing they want to talk about and um yeah yeah, I definitely I think agree. it's oh, oh go Sorry. for it. <laughs> Mine's super quick. I was just gonna say I agree. I think that humor is definitely used as a defense mechanism to gloss over things that are probably more uncomfortable to talk about. And like not universally, not for all men. Um, I'm sure it happens a lot for women or non-binary, et cetera, um, identities, but I've seen a lot in my brother growing up as a middle school boy, which I feel like is the ultimate case study um, <laughs> in terms of like what they're talking about um, and is very similar. Um, funny because I also, with my boyfriend, re- reflect the same conversations in terms of when I ask questions about his childhood regarding anything with sex or any serious topic in general, like it's always ended in like a humorous thing that mm-hmm. like kind of empties out the elephant in the room because like they it's like a collective acknowledgement that they don't want to talk about this but they also like need some transition (laughs) you know I was just gonna say I think it's funny how I've experienced more conversations with my friends male and female just about their experiences intimately than like ever talking about just a personal like like masturbating like that's like one person like there aren't two parties involved you're not worrying about breaking someone else's trust and disclosing information about them but I think it goes back to like that sex education and like people being uncomfortable with the thought of pleasure so I don't know yeah and it's interesting to me that like with since I mean the example that we're talking about and saying that you know a lot of men 
tend to not have these more intimate discussions, women, you know, sticking to the binary here tend to be talk more about like our personal lives and things like that. And like our feelings or whatever. Um, but we don't talk about that. We don't talk about Mm -hmm. masturbation. We don't really talk about sex. Um, which is interesting. Honestly, I feel like since I've been in college, that door has opened up a lot for me and my friends from high school. I don't think that that's like necessarily common. Um, but like I will, I, I've noticed that in high school, there's every once in a while got brought up and maybe one or two people might've been uncomfortable. And so it's also hard when you're initiating a conversation with a group of people and not everyone is at that step. Um, And so it kind of like signals to the group that you need to like discuss something else that everyone can engage in. Yeah. But by college, I think like everyone in our friend group was having similar experiences and needing a place to vocalize those experiences and process them with other people. And that was when we first started kind of talking about our, our sexual um, activity and our relationships and our expectations and kind of how our background with these topics fit into that. Mm. Not to switch gears if we still want to talk, discuss something on this um, stream of thought, but I wanted to ask you guys like what your thoughts are especially because we didn't get to it on class last time um, regarding apps like Seeking Arrangements and OnlyFans and how um, like just, I don't know, I don't want to like ask too much of a specific question Mm -hmm. um, to direct our thoughts, but just in general, what what do you guys think of them? I, for, for OnlyFans, I personally see no issue because um some women do like find empowerment in their bodies and uh, it's that type of media is going to be um created no matter what so i'd much rather have um women in charge of their own bodies and not you know uh, scammed or taken advantage of or um put in situations where they feel completely uncomfortable whereas like if if they can make money just at home doing it by themselves without a man screaming at them um, putting them in situations. Cause I, I was watching, it was some podcast and it was Lana Rhodes talking and she was saying how, um, she's a porn star and she was talking about how, like, even though, um, they technically like would get her consent, she felt so much pressure because there were so many men in the room, like, like who were relying on her and so many people who were yelling at her and she was like, fine. Yeah. Um, and she says that, like, even though she consented, she felt very much, like, pressured to, and, like, she was put into uncomfortable situations that, like, had she had been alone or, like, around people who supported her and didn't just want to use her, she would not have made certain decisions, and, um, and now she's able to, like, comfortably do everything she wants to do on OnlyFans, because it's, like, it is something she, like, that's a career she wanted to pursue, she just didn't know all of the, um, negativity and people who would be after her if she did that right I feel similarly regarding um only fans and then also you know seeing the way that like celebrities and things like that have kind of I don't know I don't want to I don't know if like invaded the platform is like the right word but I feel like it is um 
And like when there are, you know, sex workers on there who, you know, are trying to make money and then like all these celebrities have kind of like stepped in or, or like taking advantage of that. And like, I don't agree with that with the celebrities, <laughs> but yeah. I'm not as familiar with um, seeking arrangements. I just kind of like looked it up and I just saw here that um, like sugar babies who register with their university email address automatically qualify for premium membership status. And like, I find that kind of strange. And I feel like, I don't know, like what it, I guess for me, I'm just like thinking in like, in terms of like privacy and things like that. And like the the data then that the people that run the app and stuff then have access to. Obviously you have the option to use your university email address or not, but I guess like with OnlyFans, it just seems like there is a lot more agency. Um, like you mentioned, Michelle. Um, but I, I don't know. I've always, I feel weird about like age gaps and things like that. But at the same time, it's like, well, if, if that's what the people are like consenting to and like that's what they're into then like who am I to judge um it's it's not my like it's my problem that that makes me uncomfortable and that's not something that I would be open to I guess is how I I kind of viewed that yeah I think um I have two comments on that with um with something like seeking arrangements I I have no problem with seeking arrangement. I, I seeking arrangements. I have problems with um, apps and websites that have the same idea but don't have the same security and background checks. That because I know that seeking arrangements um, has a lot of like safety guards in place where oh. it's like, yeah, I know that they like in depth like they vet every person or every um, one of the n- not sugar babies, the other person. Um, they vet them and they like they. Um, security check they like clear everything so it's safe so that like if you sign up like the the website takes liability for anything that happens with other websites spawning from that um it like gives up a front that it does that but it doesn't it there's there's no safety guards in check and um people think that just because websites like seeking arrangements are safe then they're safe to use these alternative options that um don't have these same uh, guards up, but they're technically easier to use, easier to set up, easier to make money from. And, um, that I take problem with that because it's taking advantage of these like possibly vulnerable women who like are in these situations where they do have to, like, this is how they make money. They are going to dinner. They're like acting as sugar babies. Like, even if it's not sexual, they're still like pimping out their time, um, Mm. to creepy men um so I like if that's something they feel comfortable doing or you know need to do then I'd much rather have it be in a safe space and then talking about OnlyFans with celebrities that bothered me so much because uh, if you guys are familiar with like the Bella Thorne situation yeah yeah um it then they claim that like people like Bella Thorne who are taking this um platform from these sex workers are saying like but I'm normal uh, oh my gosh but I'm normalizing it. I am doing this. Like I am making it more acceptable. No, you're not. You're taking away from the the income of these sex workers. You're um, essentially making a joke out of what they do. Um, 
that I don't like. And I know that there was like a whole thing where um, because Bella Thorne um, messed up so much for these sex workers in terms of like how much they were getting paid, um, she because the publicity looked so bad she was like no I'm gonna reach out to these sex workers and I'm gonna work with them and then uh one of the sex workers uh she created a video and she spoke out and she was like um Bella Thorne completely scammed us she said she was gonna help us and give us a bigger platform um and then she uh just didn't so that we would clear her name without her giving us anything back and it's just heartbreaking to hear like these women who are already like put in these situations where they have to do this and then they're getting scammed again by a woman who claims to be their ally right I just I oh sorry no you go ahead I like I said like I didn't know much about seeking arrangements so I was doing like a little more um of a search and I did see that like a 13 year old was met through it and so like that is also like another yeah that's not good she, um, the guy who like met her, his name is Doug Richards, thought that she was 17. And I guess like on the website, it was advertised that she was 17, but she was really 13 years old. And so I feel like that also kind of like brings up um, kind of something that I've seen um, conversations about regarding like certain influencers and I guess celebrities and how when they're like about to turn 18, um, people are like, oh, can't wait till they turn 18. So then they become, they start an OnlyFans and then they do start an OnlyFans and like it blows up and like there it's like, I don't know. I feel like I feel torn, I guess morally almost because it's like, yes, if it's a woman's decision to, you know, and she consents to what's going on and, she, and she's exercising her agency by like, being a part of this platform but then like the the weirdness and like the sexualization of like teenagers and like how that plays into it in and, and then also like the way that young women are internalizing that and like also you know waiting till they turn 18 so then they can do this I don't know <laughs> because like, I, it makes me feel really torn like yeah I see you completely. And I, I feel similarly, like I have, I have no quarrels with like these women who come to the, to these apps and like, um, do their thing. But I think where I struggle is like looking at these apps as the end all be all to sexual liberation <laughs> and sexual autonomy. Like, I don't think it is at least in its current structure and system, the answer or solution um, and like, especially from like a theoretical perspective in the, in these, in these transactions, like the notion that I've got, um, that I've kind of like observed and heard, um, from people who use these apps or women who use these apps is like the idea that these men will get more or will get some kind of sexual exchange at some point. And right. so they hang on to that idea. Um, and whether it's just text messaging or pictures or just meeting on dates and nothing more, there's still that like overlying expectation. Sorry, my alarm. Um, there's still that overlying expectation um, to provide a sexual favor yeah. for compensation. And that is a lot of pressure, I think, on women, um, even if they know where their limit is and they know, 
you know, they have these safeguards to the app, things like that. Like it's still reifying and perpetuating the idea that we have to exchange sex um, to receive compensation or even to just kind of get out of whatever situation is causing us to want to be on the app in the first place right. uh, instead of looking to other more sustainable resources. And I think there is an opportunity for these apps to be a sustainable resource, but at least in specifically seeking arrangements as well. I think it's, it's very limited to think that we can't come up with something that is more, that provides more agency and autonomy and safety for the women who are using the app. Right. Because even, you know, with specifically seeking arrangements, there is still like that power dynamic, especially since there mm-hmm. is typically the that big age gap. Um, and a lot of times the the men on the app are older and they're wealthy. And like so there's all these different things that play into the, the power dynamics. Um, and so I guess it almost kind of goes into like what we were talking about, like, um, you know, Marxism isn't the solution if the patriarchy, the patriarchy still exists. So like these, these apps cannot be the solution, like you said, to, to um, sexual liberation, if the patriarchy still exists, because, okay, you have the safeguards in the app, then what if you meet in person? Then what? You can still be put into danger. And yeah, Yes, I think you hit the nail on the head with like the patriarchy, if it still exists, it's still reifying the power dynamic that's created within the app, whether the app explicitly defines the power dynamic or not, like culturally and socially, we assume and we work within the power dynamic. Yeah, like the tools to just... Yes, I was totally thinking of that reading too. (laughs) Good. Yeah. I can't remember which article um, it was. It wasn't in class on Friday, but I feel like it, all of the readings that we did um, kind of like talk about this and then even like tying in um, just my garage okay um like pornography and and things like that and like I guess it just goes back to to the power dynamics like no matter what even if there there isn't understood you know the woman is in charge the patriarchy still exists so like how, how do we get out of that I don't know It's, yeah, I think, I mean, it's also reductive to think that like we could dismantle the patriarchy through a couple apps, you know, (laughs) but like, it's like such a large conversation. And I think not only involves sexual liberation, but multiple areas of either reform or more radical solutions. Yeah. Uh, Kind of piggybacking off of that, did you guys get a chance to read the like radical 
the sex war debate between radical and libertarian feminists. I just pulled that up. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Okay. So I wanted to that talk to you guys about that and what you guys were thinking in terms of like where these two groups stand and also where the author kind of introduces this new, I can't remember what she calls it, but I need to find, she calls like the kind of a more inter, more connected or intersected approach to both radical and libertarian positions. Right. Well, I feel like um, kind of like what we're talking about in in being able to perceive these apps and like being able to perceive OnlyFans and um, seeking arrangements and whatever other, you know, iterations of those exist as well as being the solution is definitely in line with like the libertarian theory of um, I don't know what it's defined as but the, the, the libertarian paradigm of sexuality, because it does um, kind of like prioritize pleasure as like being the end all be all. Um, and it says here, let me see. As feminists, we should reclaim control over female sexuality by demanding, demanding the right to practice whatever gives us pleasure and satisfaction. Um, and then also that human sexuality is defined as the exchange of physical, erotic, and, and genital sexual pleasures, which I feel like our whole conversation is kind of like straying away from that and like straying away from, you know, only having one definition and having um, sexuality be, be confined within this box of sex alone I don't know if that Mm -hmm. resonates yes how it's all isolated yeah Mm -hmm. because then it's like oh well like the radical view is that um emotional connection is is what counts and so then like being able to understand like well it doesn't always have to be one or the other it's not only, you know, um, sex plus emotional connection that's valid. And it's also not just um, the pure pleasure that is the sole definition. I don't know. I don't know. Yeah. It's interesting because in that distinction, then pleasure versus like emotion is kind of centered as where like, as the defining point between like what's appropriate and what's not. Whereas (laughs) in the reading the author presents like the potential for danger being the center of differentiation where Mm -hmm. she discusses basic risky and forbidden sexual practices as like the different categories as to know like what is what we should encourage and what we shouldn't in society regarding sexual activity um and kind of just to elaborate like forbidden sexual practices she defines as those in which relations of dominance and submission are so explicit that feminists hold that they should be illegal. And that involves incest, rape, domestic violence, sexual relations between really young children and adults. Um, And I don't know, I really liked this categorization happening um, where she was very, explicit about what we should be firm in terms of like this is not this is not um sexually liberating for anybody this is not something we should promote or continue to engage in 
Um, but then I also was like kind of more iffy in terms of like what's risky and what is basic, you know, like yeah. that begs the question, what's vanilla sex and what is, you know, like everyone's interpretation is different. And how do we, how do we, um, basically disperse this knowledge or this like classification system to everybody where everyone's on the same page in terms of like what we can ask for, what we expect and what is not um, within the confines of our of possibility basically regarding sexual activity. And, you know, I almost feel like that's the point of like the fact that um, basic and risky are not as explicitly defined as danger, like the danger zone, because if we can all agree that, you know, the, what you mentioned as being categorized as, a, as dangerous practices, like those are explicitly not okay. No feminist will, will accept that. Um, then each individual can kind of negotiate for themselves and within their own, you know, relationship or, or, or person that they're um, engaging with, they can negotiate those things for themselves. Because I think the differentiation between something that's considered basic and, and is considered risky um, is different for everyone. Yeah. I mean, like, just to follow up, do we even need a distinction between risky and basic behavior? Like, is that something that is even beneficial for us? Or is identifying this danger zone, I liked what you called that, the danger zone, the more important distinction I don't know if anyone else wanted to chime in. No, okay. Well, I think for me, I feel like it's sufficient to to have just like, you know, the danger zone explicitly defined. Because I do think that um, there are stigmas regarding what people define as basic and risky. Yes. You know, because there are people who feel like, oh, well, like you use the term vanilla, like I'm too vanilla, like that's mm-hmm. not fun. That's not like cool. It's not interesting. Or, oh, I have these like certain kinks or whatever. And like some people might not be okay with that or it might be weird to people. So like people kind of, there's stigmas either way. Um, but I think being able to just say like, there is like this spectrum of like what is okay and what some people are okay with and some people are not comfortable with versus like, or, and then there's also this danger zone that like we should not even consider, like this is just not up for debate. I feel like that's more beneficial. Mm-hmm. I agree. And even like hearing you talk about um, the, like attempting to create the distinction between um basic and risky sex like that is very binary thinking (laughs) and that's very Mm -hmm. like either or type of thinking where like it it assumes that a a couple or relationship that um that decides that they want to have basic sex (laughs) or risky sex you know like that that's the only thing that they do every time like there's no opportunity for um kind of exploring other ways of sexual activity and that you're like limited within what you decided in the beginning Or whereas like, as we know, like sex is much more fluid than that and changes and evolves with people as they change and evolve. Um, But yeah, I I agree. I think that is a a good, a good like jumping off point from that reading of like what we 
see as beneficial to categorizing the way we have or the way we engage in sex. Mm -hmm. Can't even talk about it the way Mm -hmm. we talk about it. Does anyone else have anything to add? I'm trying to remember what, because I remember who brought this up in class. Oh, I think it was uh, Gabrielle. Um, there, there in human sexuality, um, the professor brought in um, a porn star who is now like leading her own um, production company where um, she's trying to, you know, all of the actors, she wants them all to be completely comfortable. And she like includes consent in the video and she includes um, lube and a bunch of things that um, go into actual sex that like don't happen in traditional porn where, because um, someone took, uh, I found this quote somewhere. It was um, men don't want sex with women. Men want to use women's bodies to masturbate. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think like she does a good job of like in her video showing like that female pleasure is so important that like, yes, use lube, like make the woman comfortable, make her actually enjoy herself because this isn't about the man. It's about both of you, like finding pleasure. Um, so that, yeah, um, that was something I really enjoyed learning about last year. Mm-hmm. How do we kind of like jumping off of that like I completely agree and like support that but when I'm thinking about implementing it into my own sexual practices that seems very daunting and like scary of an ask and I'm just curious like not only for myself but in general like how do we how do we change the expectation to like begin to center like female pleasure in sex or like how do we normalize it I guess more um I think I think it could start with just being more comfortable with expressing our needs. Like I I know for myself, I don't always feel comfortable saying what I want. And like, if you can't say it, how can it be possible to get that? You know what I mean? Like you can't, I, I can't expect a partner to know what I want if I don't even feel comfortable saying it. So it really just, that's like, for me, I think it would start for me, like, building that confidence and being more okay with having a human need or a desire like it's yeah. not <laughs> it's not a bad thing so I think also um what you said like being comfortable with our needs but also being comfortable with our wants because mm-hmm. like I think um for a lot of people who identify as women it can be easy to say like, well, I don't need that and to like put others needs before your own. Um, And I think it could also start with like individual like self exploration, like figuring out what it is that you like and and so that you can ask for what you want. That's so true because it definitely does like in the moment comes down to like, I don't absolutely need this to be happy. Like I will, I will sacrifice that yeah. or compromise that. And then it becomes a pattern over time. Yeah. And then also like, I guess also like, just like our, our conceptions of what sex is supposed to be like, it's supposed to like have this like big ending and then it's like over, but like it doesn't. 
I don't know. And like, yeah. Why is the timeline defined by like when the man achieves pleasure? Yes. Mm-hmm. Like, then- I, I don't know. Something I think is really funny related to that is like, I've never, <laughs> never thought of the ending of sex being when I have pleasure. Like it's yeah. not over until it's over. You know what I mean? So yeah, I don't know. Maybe like no. thinking it's more like, about that. <laughs> and I'm there, not sure if. Um, oh, continue. You go. You go. Well, I'm not sure if this is like reaching a TMI, <laughs> but like ever since like starting to be more sexually active, like in my head, I'm like, I'm not touching you until I get mm-hmm. off. Like I, because I, because I know the second I do, mm-hmm. then we're done. Yeah. So no, I go. I first. feel that like that stress (laughs) you know like in the moment like especially because there's more stigma or not what's the word like more tension I guess around the male partner losing arousal and then needing to gain it again whereas for women it's just expected that you can turn it on and off easily Mm -hmm. or that you can pick up momentum again easily and so like that's another way that kind of the the timing of it or like the the timeline of sex is kind of centered around him not only in terms of of reaching climax but also in terms of arousal in that pattern yeah something that and then when gonna, we finally sorry it's okay something Go. i was going to say is that like there have been times where um I, I feel like a child because I'm like trying not to talk loud because my family is home. But anyway, I'll get over it. Um, <laughs> You're good. Like there have been times where my boyfriend doesn't finish and like I feel guilty, like, but I do. And I'm like, yes! so bad. Like, but like, he, like, he's fine. He doesn't care. And I feel bad. I'm like, well, but like we, we both should have right like and then I'll like think about it and then I'm like and then I get sad and I'm like oh my god like and I don't know why but I'm just like why do I feel that way like he no, I feel literally that way too. thinking about it at all I think it's because I've associated um, pleasure so much with a male orgasm for him like I, that that's if he does it then there was no pleasure but the reality of the situation is like clearly there was pleasure throughout but exactly you know what I mean so and it doesn't it doesn't even um, also when either party finishing you know like it, right. it, it and then like that just puts like so much stress on like either either person involved if you're like just thinking about that I don't know. Yeah. It's also when we finally like experience or like see a man who like wants to put us first and like our pleasure first, it's like this like big exciting thing, but like the bar is on the floor. Like (laughs) they should have already um, been like supporting us and like trying to like hype up us and like. That's so true, Michelle. We're like, oh my God, like this is exceeding my expectations. But like we literally had no no expectations (laughs) to begin with. And it's, I don't know. It's so hard to impress us. Yeah. And it's weird because like, like I've only ever been with one person and it's like almost five years. And like, 
this might be TMI, but like because of the pandemic and now we both live at home, like we haven't had sex at all in like over a year. That's like a really long time. Um, but still like, I, I don't know, like totally rhetorical, but it was like, it's like, why do I still feel that way? And Mm. it's interesting, like, even though we are in these classes where we are working towards unlearning all of these things and like, are so self-aware, we still fall into these like pitfalls and like these like mental traps. I don't know. I don't know if this is TMI either, but I've been with my SO for like going on three or four years now or almost four years. And I have never climaxed with him before. Um, And I also like, I don't know if this is feminist, but I, I definitely like, even at a subconscious level, I take responsibility for part of that because I don't center my pleasure enough. Even Mm -hmm. like, you know, I think that I also play a role in not liberating myself. Right. But I also feel a sense of guilt at the same time because like self guilt in terms of like knowing that I play a role in that, but also guilt in that, like, I think because of this lack of like sexual liberation or even like less than that, like climaxing ever with my partner, I think that like I, I definitely crave it more or initiate sex more often. And then I feel guilty too, because I'm like, I feel like I'm taking up time or I'm in, I'm interrupting or I'm too demanding. Um, And so like, I don't know, I feel like there's just, women are made to feel guilty in every situation, you know, whether we're getting sex, whether we're not, (laughs) you know, like we're kind of trained to, respond with feeling like we're not doing enough or we're doing the wrong thing yeah going right off of that because I resonate with that so hard because the last not relationship but like situationship I was in for like eight-ish months um I was like the one who initiated all the time like he was like oh we don't have to and but I was like and I always felt bad. I was like, what's wrong with me that I'm like the horny one? And I was like, there's nothing wrong with that. Yeah, I was like, there's nothing wrong with that. There's just like, we're just made to feel bad about that because like women are supposed to be like, like prudish and like dainty yeah. and like not like express what we want. And there's nothing wrong with me expressing that. And I just like had to get over that with myself. Yes, we're like conditioned to always want to accept sex, but never to want to initiate or want it. Yeah, yeah. It's it's to, like, media portrayals because like men are portrayed as the ones that are like always want sex and then it's like also on them it's like wait you don't like okay that's weird like, <laughs> yeah. but then it's not even like oh you're weird because you don't want it it's like oh there's something wrong with me because yeah. I'm taking on that role yeah not that either of those is the correct way to think about right. it, but like, there's there's no correct way to be a woman, no matter what you do. You're <laughs> wrong. That's what I've gathered. Um, this feels like a good time to wrap up, just because I'm thinking about it, and uh, we've been talking for like two-ish hours, and yes. we still have to go through this and edit. Um, oh, do we have any final thoughts? I don't think so. I feel what like a great convo. Really solid. Yeah, that was really 